Well, thank you, Nathan, for taking time to read through Romans 8 for us. And good morning again, everyone. Uh, my name is Dan Spino, as Nathan's already told you, uh, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Christ Community. And as we continue in our time of worship, um, how about if I pray for us as we start to look at God's Word? Lord, I ask that, that we would quiet our hearts and our minds so that we can hear what you have to say. May you continue to guide our time this morning, and may you alone be glorified. May your love be manifested to us today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is such a wonderful time of year, isn't it? This last week of December, when things slow down a little bit, things at the office aren't as pressing, take some time off. We can spend a little bit more time with our family and and do some of the things that we love to do. I know for my wife, Stephanie, and I, what we love to do is stay up way too late watching movies, some old, some new, and definitely some reruns. There are some repeats that we like to go through um, yearly, monthly, um, sometimes weekly, sadly. Um, it's what we like to do. And though I risk surrendering my man card this morning, I'm going to tell you about some of the movies that I've seen. Um, in all these movies, I've noticed a common theme, um, a common occurrence in all these movies. There's two characters who are in love that have some sort of relationship, whether it be a significant other or a spouse or maybe it's a parent-child relationship. And what, what inevitably happens is there's separation in this relationship, and throughout the rest of the movie, we're left wondering, will these two people actually be reunited? Will they actually come back together? Let me give you some examples. Um, in the movie Tangled, if anybody's seen the movie Tangled, uh, we find that Eugene and Rapunzel are separated by Rapunzel's lack of identity. She doesn't realize that she's the princess. There's um, a tall tower, and then there's the evil stepmother that keeps these two apart. Or in the movie Brave, um, another Pixar movie which we like to watch, uh, it's witchcraft that physically separates an already estranged relationship between a mother and her daughter. Or in Pride and Prejudice, for all the Jane Austen fans out there. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. First service, I raised my hand, and I won't do that. That was a little embarrassing. No other guy in the room was with me. So I'll just speak to the women right now for all the Jane Austen fans out there. Not that I've seen it. My wife told me about this one. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice, there's some guy named Mr. Darcy and... Elizabeth, I think that was her name, I can't remember. Uh, but they were separated in their relationship because of their, their pride and their prejudice, hence the creative title. And then in Home Alone, we have the mother who's separated from her son uh, by several states, and she realizes this with the exclamation of, Kevin! Right? Uh, one of those scenes in the movie. And then there's the movie Titanic. Um, I couldn't resist mentioning this one. This is just an awful movie. Um, LAUGHTER And who could ever forget that terrible line, I'll never let go, Jack, or that equally terrible Celine Dion song that's associated with this movie. And good luck getting that out of your head the rest of today. Now, don't worry, before I got up here, Nathan saw my notes. He's already taken my man card, so I get it. Um, What can I say? I'm a sucker for sappy movies, Um, and I like hanging out with my wife, so the two go hand in hand, Um, except for the movie Titanic. I swear, I only saw that movie once. It was one of my weaker moments in life. I'll never see it again. And now that I repent it, hopefully you all will forgive me. All right, let's move on. In all these examples, in all these movies, 
the love between the two people is separable. It is possible that these two characters won't come back together. That's why we watch for an hour and a half to two hours, right? We want to see what will happen with these two characters. We want to see if they will be able to overcome their obstacles, whether it be a tall tower or witchcraft or several states or pride or prejudice or even a sinking ship in the midst of a promise to never let go. (laughs) Being separated is possible, and our hope is that the characters will be reunited. And true to form in all of these movies, the characters are basically brought back together. They are reunited. And, and we like that about movies. This gives us comfort. We find comfort in knowing that the relationships aren't permanently separated. See, in these movies and in our lives, separation is a real possibility. And not only is it a possibility, in fact, it is quite common Separation is real in our world. It can't be ruled out. But thankfully, it is not so with God. And as Nathan's already alluded to, for the past several weeks through our Advent series, we've been working through Romans chapter 8, uncovering this conspiracy of love, this story behind the Christmas story. And you've heard Chris and you've heard Nathan tell you different things about the passages. For example, these are the last five weeks in order. Christmas means there's no condemnation. Christmas means slaves become sons. Christmas means we will not wait forever. Christmas means we will never be alone. And last week, Christmas means God does what he wants, and what he wants is always good. And I hope that as you hear these, as you read through this text, it becomes obvious to you that that God loves you. For those that place their faith in Christ, Christmas means God loves you and nothing could ever separate you from his love. And this love that God has for us is made explicitly clear in our text today in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. The problem, though, is that when, when we, when you and I come to this idea that God, is lo- that God loves us, we cannot get our hands around this idea that this love is inseparable. Where else in our life do we have a promise like this? What other relationship can we turn to where love is inseparable as a guarantee? When I come to texts like this, I know I struggle truly believing and receiving this truthful promise that God does love me and that nothing can separate me from his love. And I'm left wondering why. Why is it that I just can't cling on to you? Why I can't fully believe and receive this promise? Well, there are two main reasons or two obstacles for this, though how these manifest themselves might play out in a multitude of ways. First, as I've already alluded to, separation is a possibility in our relationships. We can look at any human-to-human relationship in our world, and we see example after example of separation, right? Friendships are not permanent. People move. There's job transfer. There's military transfers. Lives are uprooted. People move, and relationships end. Friendships end. Even with Facebook, friendships end, There's boyfriends and girlfriends that break up, and the two loved ones never speak to each other ever again. Their relationship is over. It's separated. We see parents abandoning children, and children abandoning parents. Our our families are disrupted. Even our wedding vows are temporary. Divorce is an option. Unless you think Christians are perfect, (laughs) 
I hope you realize that all of these examples have taken place in our church. Our human relationships are very fragile indeed. And some of us have gone through some of these examples and, and, are, and feel the scar of this brokenness. We are, we are scarred by the separation that has taken place. Trusting another person, let alone a distant and maybe remote God, seems impossible. It's a really hard thing to do. The second reason or obstacle why we have a hard time believing in God's love is that we think of ourselves as unworthy of his love. In fact, we find that we are actually unlovable. Listen to what Charles Hodge, who's an American theologian from the early 1800s, had to say. The great difficulty with many Christians is that they cannot persuade themselves that Christ or God loves them. And the reason why they cannot feel confident in the love of God is that they know they do not deserve his love. On the contrary, that they are in the highest degree unlovely. How can the infinitely pure God love those who are defiled with sin, who are proud, selfish, discontented, ungrateful, disobedient? This indeed is hard to believe. And it is absolutely true. We are unworthy of God's love. And as fallen sinners, we may even seem unlovable, unlovely, the quote Charles Hodge. But to focus only on this is to miss the grace that God has for us. Yes, we don't, we do not, we don't deserve God's love, but God does indeed love us. Though we may think of ourselves as unlovable by grace and because of grace, God does indeed love us. It is a love that is contrary to any other love that we see in our relationships in this world. It is contrary to what we see around us, contrary to what others might say about us, contrary to what we might say about ourselves and what we see in ourselves, contrary to all of these lies. God loves you, and nothing can separate you from his love. In our text today, found in Romans 8, Verses 31 through 39, Paul addresses these two obstacles to receiving God's love head on. And in this text, we will clearly see that God does love you and nothing, nothing can separate you from this love. In the first few verses in in 31 through 37, we find Paul questioning God's love. In a recent conversation I had with a friend who pastored a church for 35 years in Harrisonville, Um, He made the statement of, there's no right answers to wrong questions. And I love this. It was a a really interesting moment in our dialogue when he said that, and I I just love that he phrased that. And that somewhat applies here. Paul's not asking wrong questions. In fact, the questions he's asking are very much really good questions. But the way he asks the questions, there are no right answers. They are unanswerable. Listen to what Paul pens as he's led by the Holy Spirit in these verses 31 through 37. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the loved one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul draws his argument that he's been building throughout Romans 8 and even earlier to a close. He says, what shall we say to these things? And then as a way to summarize everything that's come before it, he asks several questions and uses words and, and images that draw back earlier to chapter 8 and even into earlier chapters. He's, he's tying, connecting it all together here in these passages, in these verses. And in these verses, Paul asks five questions in such a way that they cannot be answered. They're questions that describe God's love for us and also affirm his love. So first, he asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is in the question, since God is for us, since the creator of the world, the creator of everything that we see, the one true God is for us, he's on our side, who could be against us? The answer is no one. This is an unanswerable question. There's no one and nothing that could ever come against us in victory. And sure, things might have a temporary sting now, but ultimately, since God is for us, nothing could ever be against us. And Paul uses this conditional statement to really heighten the truth. Since it is a matter of fact that God is for us, nothing could ever be against us. It is a sure thing. That's what Paul is saying here. And then he moves on with his next question. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As you heard last week, Nathan said, God does what he wants. What he wants is always good, and his good is, is for our greatest delight. God promises good things that will conform us to the image of Christ. He wants us to live into who we are meant to be, and he provides for us. He draws us into this deeper relationship. Paul is saying, since God graciously gave himself up and thus gave us eternal life, how will he not also give us what we need to live into this life? If God cares for the sparrows, how much more does he care for his people? God does, in fact, give us what we need to live. And sometimes God's gift comes in ugly wrapping paper, right? But we can be assured God is intimately involved in our daily lives. And he will give us what we need as we are conformed to the image of Christ. And Paul continues with his question. In verse 33, he asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies and Paul has already developed this in his previous verses. Through Jesus' work on a cross and our profession of faith, this justifying act is a once and final act. He says, you've been justified. Since we have been justified, that is, since we have been declared right, since we have been declared holy, since we've been declared just, all through what Jesus has done for us, since it is God who declares all of these things for us, who could ever bring a charge against us? In our relationships with others, people like to bring charges against us that both make us defensive and even destroy these relationships. All of us have faced a bully of some kind or another. 
Some of us even bully ourselves with the negative self-talk that we have. But here Paul says there is nothing that could destroy your relationship or your standing with God. No one could ever tell you that you do not belong to him, that you are not holy, that you are an unforgivable sinner, and that you are unlovable. No one. For those that claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, for those that profess their faith in him, in return for such faith, God declares you justified. God looks upon you without fault and with great joy. And no one could ever bring a charge against you. In Paul's fourth question, he connects us back with that first verse of Romans 8. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In the first verse of Romans 8, Paul says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And though Paul uses a similar theme again, as he's saying again, there's no condemnation, he adds to it. He adds to this, this beautiful image of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And though we read this present tense verb, this interceding, let me be clear, this intercession is a final act. It is a completed act. We don't need Jesus to keep telling God to love us or to keep telling God to forgive us. This intercession is a completed act. It's final. When Jesus died for us, God both displayed his love for us and he looked at our past, our present, and our future sins that we have committed and we will ever commit, and he forgave them all. This intercession is complete. God doesn't look at you like some ugly sinner each time you mess up. That's seeing ourselves as the world wants to see us. No, through the eyes of Jesus, as I've already stated, God looks at you without fault and with great joy. And yeah, we are going to mess up sometimes, but God doesn't see that potential sin in you. He sees the actual Christ in you. And this is where the Holy Spirit helps us out. Though our flesh wants to make us slaves to sin, the Holy Spirit sets us free. And we are now heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In these, last two, in these two verses here, this idea of being justified and, and no condemnation, Paul is using this legal language and he draws us into this courtroom. And he says, God the judge is sitting on his seat. Now the plaintiff is over here and he or she are bringing their charges against you. But you, the defendant, you don't even have to show up. You don't have to come to court that day. Why? <laughs> because it is God who justifies and there is no condemnation. No one can bring a charge against you. God has already given you the verdict. We're not waiting to receive some punishment that others want us to take on. <laughs> it is better than that and contrary to that. God is for you and wants to give you good things. And finally, in this fifth question, it's this, this longest question and answer in these few verses, Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
This is the first mention of this idea of being separated from God's love, which Paul is going to develop in the next few verses. Here, the emphasis is on this word conquerors, this, this strong, emphatic victory language. Paul tells us that we can overcome anyone who tries to separate us from God. Whether they bring tribulations against us or bring us distress or persecute us or withhold food or take away our clothes or put us in danger or even try to take our lives with a sword, we can become conquerors. And Paul knows all about these things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following, Paul lists all these things of things that he himself has gone through. And he'll even face death. He'll face the sword at the end of his life in defense of the gospel. But through all of these things, Paul and us are able to overcome because of Christ's victory. Christ's victory is alive in us if only we would lean into it. And if Romans 8.28 is that hand grenade that people like to throw in the hospital room, Philippians 4.13 is that grenade that people like to throw at celebrations and, and at graduations, I, that I can do all things through him who strength, strengthens me. We like to throw this verse around and even misuse it. The proper context of this verse is seen here in Romans. Through all of these trials, we can overcome because of Christ. Because he overcame death on a cross and gives us the strength to overcome the trials that we face. It is through our faith in Christ and through the assurance of, that nothing could separate us from this love that we can overcome these things. And it is through leaning in on his strength, not through our own strength. And I love books. Not that I'm an avid reader, but I like the idea of books. Maybe that's a better way to phrase it. And what I love about books is that they're just sitting around waiting to be opened. And as you open them, or as I open them, and I read these words, and they form sentences and form phrases, these concepts, these, these thoughts become alive. They, and I start to own them. I become enlightened in a way. And I'm just, just caught off guard. They've been sitting here for years. Some of them are 100-year-old books, just waiting there, waiting to be tapped into. And it's nothing new. It's been written in these books a long time ago. <laughs> the same is true with Christ's victory in us. It's just sitting there inside of us, waiting to be unlocked, waiting to be discovered for those who profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And when you unlock it, when you lean into him, you too can be conquerors over these things. And not on your own strength, but by the strength and victory of Christ in you. So we have these five questions, and we're left wondering, what do we learn from these questions? Well, we see that God does indeed love us. His love is proven in these five questions. Paul tells us that he is for us. He gives us all things. <laughs> he justifies us. He intercedes for us, and he makes us victorious. This is God's love. And truly, there is no greater love than this. But when I say that there's no greater love, just what does it mean for God to love you, to love me? Just what is God's love? How does God accomplish all of these things? 
In verses 38 through 39, Paul gives us a clear definition and assurance of God's love. Let me reread these verses for us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Love is who God is and what God does. If you looked up this phrase, steadfast love, it's this Hebrew word that means hesed. If you looked it up, you would see that it occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament. And most of the occurrences, if not all of them, refer to God's steadfast love. Loving others is what God does best. It is inseparable from who he is. And 1 John 4, 8, we read, God is love. God is love and it is what he does continuously. He cannot help but to love you with steadfast love. And though we, in our relationships, we say things like, I love you today more than I did yesterday. (laughs) This is not true of God. God's love is complete. He steadfastly loves you yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It will not change. It will never quit. Recently, we had this snowstorm here in Kansas City a few weeks ago, this one to three inches big blizzard that blew through. Um, Sarcasm, sorry. Uh, I'm from Buffalo, New York, so that's like a summer day for us. Um, But my wife and I drove into the city, and we got off the highway on 31st Street. And if you're familiar with this section of the city, it is a hill and just covered in ice this day. So we were going up the hill, and all the cars in front of us came to a stop, and we came to a stop. When the light turned green, though, all the cars took off, and we didn't. We stayed there. Um, Cars came around us. Um, I pushed the gas, and no matter how hard I tried, the tires just kept spinning. They just just quit. They didn't want to work anymore. Other cars came behind us, stopped, looked at us, pulled around. I mean, I think they were kind of showing off, like, hey, you can't do this? Like, no. And you want to talk about a 20-minute, heart-pounding, prayer-filled moment of your life. I think my leg is still shaking from the adrenaline. I mean, we had a semi-truck coming behind us, and at the last second, he swerved. Um, Yeah, scary stuff. Finally, we got an ounce of momentum, and we were able to get off onto a side road. Um, And you know the story ends well, because my wife and I are both here, so... And our cars, too. But the tires just quit. They gave up. They stopped working. And not just my tires, but as I look back in my life, I see that I've quit. I've given up. I've stopped working at times, too. When, when things have gotten tough, I quit. When I've gotten bored, I've quit. Found something else new. Even to this day, I have to actively fight against this tendency to want to quit and instead to persevere. See, in our world... And our daily living, this is what happens. Things depreciate. That's how they're designed now. They're designed to break down. Things stop working. And not only the things in our life, but people too. People quit. People give up. But this is the exact opposite of what God does. God never quits. His love is steadfast. It perseveres for us and on our behalf. God is for us. His love is for us. And God's love manifests itself to us in Jesus' death 
on the cross. We want to know what God's love is? That's his love. Jesus' death on the cross. Paul makes this point earlier. In, in Romans 5, verse 8, he says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And not only Paul, but he's standing on good ground. If we look in John's gospel, we come across the most famous quote of Jesus ever, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. But don't stop reading there. Read the next few words of the next verse too. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God's love is infinitely connected to Jesus' death and our freedom from condemnation. And Paul makes the same point in Romans. Because God loves us, he sent his son to die for us so that there is no condemnation for those who have faith in him and who he is, and what he has done. And not only is the love steadfast, there is absolutely nothing that could ever separate us from this love that God displays for us in what Jesus has done. What greater love is there than Jesus giving his life for our sins? And this is a once and final act, and nothing could ever take away this love. It's completed It's a love to be received by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is sounding the bell of assurance here. We can be absolutely assured. That is, we can have total confidence. We can absolutely trust in what Jesus has done for us. Nothing could ever undo this. Nothing could come between it. And how do we know? Well, look at this list that Paul writes out for us. Every possible thing that could stand in our way of receiving God's love is mentioned. Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth. And in case anything else was left off there, Paul writes anything else in all creation. None of these things can separate us from God's love. But my guess is, if you're like me, (laughs) when you come to a list like this, you feel maybe a bit disconnected. I mean, angels, rulers, we don't really interact with angels. We don't really have rulers, things present, powers, height, death. I mean, what is Paul talking about here? Maybe we need to make our own list. What would you say stands in your way of God's love? Take a moment now to think about this. Maybe write some ideas down. What are some possible things that could get in the way of of God's love and make you feel separated from it. What is your Romans 8 list? Take a moment now and think through this, or like I said, write something down. Here is my attempt at making a list, my Romans 8 list, that maybe captures some of your thoughts as well. Neither my insecurities nor my failures, nor the high expectations that I place on myself, nor my broken relationships that I live with every day. Not a messy divorce, not a broken friendship, not a family member that has chosen to leave the family, nor my pride, nor my wealth, nor my poverty, nor my sickness, nor my lack of a job, nor my mean boss, no nothing. Nothing either in me or in this world could ever have the power or the ability 
to separate me from the love that God has for me, manifested in Jesus dying on a cross and then conquering death itself on my behalf. And this love sets us free so that we no longer live with condemnation, so that we are now heirs, so that we don't have to wait forever, so that we no longer live alone, and so that we can receive the good things that God has for us in Jesus. Nothing could ever separate us from God's love. God's love is Jesus on a cross, and nothing could ever take Jesus' accomplished work away from us. I challenge you, as you embark on our daily reading plan that we're we're kicking off in January, I challenge you, write down the verses that really speak to you about God's love. I think you will find that God does indeed love you. One of the greatest struggles that I have in my walk with Christ is truly believing and receiving this love. I wrestle with it almost every day. I've experienced both of these obstacles that I mentioned. I've experienced broken relationships. In some of my closest relationships, there's, there's brokenness. And quite frankly, honestly, I often feel unlovable. And yet, I come to verses like this in which God reminds me that his relationship with me is not like any earthly relationship I could ever have. And though I don't deserve such love, he loves me anyways. (laughs) He looks at me through the eyes of Jesus and sees a new Dan. For the old Dan was crucified with Christ. And now he delights in who I am. And when I realize this, when I sink my teeth into these truths, I start to realize the love that God has for me. And I hope that you too can know this steadfast, persevering love. And as God's love perseveres for you and in you, may you too persevere in your love for God and conquer the obstacles that stand in your way through Christ's victory in you. God loves me. God loves you. (laughs) And nothing could ever separate us from this love. Nothing. Nothing.